Welcome to the Big Screen Symposium 2017 podcast. The Big Screen Symposium took place in Auckland on the 30th of September and 1st of October. Please note, while many of the speakers used clips in their sessions, we've edited these out to better suit the podcast. In this screenwriting masterclass, BAFTA-winning writer Luke Davies dissects his creative method. He examines the process of adapting novels for the screen, with particular focus on turning Saru Briley's novel A Long Way Home into the critically acclaimed feature film Lion. I'm very chuffed and thrilled and honoured to be here, flattered to be invited here. And what I would like to say is, uh, whatever skills and talents that I may have aside, I was extremely fortunate to have a situation where I kind of collided into this film and became the person lucky enough to get the job of writing this, uh, this screenplay of this already completely, unbelievably, incredibly, incredible story. Anyway, I've prepared a thing today. I'm going to jump straight in because the way I've prepared it, there's barely enough time to cram in what I'd like to do here today, which is to talk about adaptation by showing you three clips from Lion that reflect in different ways on choices that I made as a screenwriter or, and that we made as a team of people making this film. Garth Davis, the director, and Seesaw Films, the producers. The first clip is going to kind of be around uh, the theme of less is sometimes more. Uh, the second clip is kind of going to be roughly the theme of Sometimes you find the tiniest fragment of something in the, in the material that you're adapting and you invent a whole lot of new stuff around that because it feels like the right narrative or emotional decision. Uh, and the third clip is kind of around the theme of, uh, you know, how often the visual is better than the verbal. Uh, and to do that, what I'm going to do is read a few bits and pieces from the... Uh, it's not a novel, the, the, uh, it's a non-fiction book, the memoir. A Long Way Home by Saru Briley, which has now been re-released by the publishers as Lion, formerly A Long Way Home by <laughs> <laughs> Saru Briley, um, and, um, talk, and, and talk and read things that, are, that, we dumped, that we dropped, really great passages that we ended up dropping for various reasons to do with compression. And, and so some of what I'm going to be talking about is the relationship between creative decisions and logistical, commercial, and financial decisions that are being made as a film is actually going into to production and you're dealing with the producers and the money issues as well as trying to make the best film that you can make. Obviously, huge spoiler alerts. If by any chance you have not seen Lion and would love the experience of experiencing the whole thing, then maybe don't stay. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm going to read for a few, a few separate passages from the early stages of the book where five, the five-year-old boy, Saru, winds up through catastrophic circumstances, lost and alone, 2,000 kilometers away from home in a foreign, hostile environment. One thing I knew was that if a train had brought me to where I was, a train could take me back. The way it worked at home was that trains on the track opposite the one you arrived on went back the other way. But I'd noticed that this station was the end of the line where all the trains came in and stopped and then chugged back the way they had come. If no one could tell me where the trains went, I would find out for myself. So I boarded the next train that arrived at the platform. Could it be as simple as that? Blah, blah, blah. But after an hour or so, the train came back to the, en to the end of its own line, somewhere on the outskirts of the city. Then it switched tracks and went back to the enormous station. I caught another train and the same thing happened. Maybe the train I needed left from another platform. There were many more platforms here than at the station near home. 
and each seemed to have several different kinds of trains. Some had lots of compartments, blah, 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 blah. And so that's what I did. Every day, for day after day, I caught a different train out of the city. In the early drafts of the screenplay, I tried to wrestle this stuff into narrative existence. It's really complicated trying to, uh, trying to make that elegant. Like, he keeps getting on trains and they keep coming back to the main station. And it was just really busy. Uh, it existed in some of the early drafts of the script, and then eventually we made the decision. We just had to find a way of uh, embodying the panic and the fear and the journey that this little kid's going through without including that busy stuff which would have chewed up which, which was chewing up six, eight pages of screen, which is of script, which is six or eight minutes of uh, screen, screen time. A scene that you will kind of see here, adapted somewhat. I had noticed a group of children who seemed to be always at the end of a particular platform where they'd huddled together in some old blankets at night. They seemed to be like me, with nowhere to go, but they didn't try to hide under the seats or on trains. I'd watched them and they had probably seen me, but they had shown no interest in my presence. I hadn't been confident enough to approach them, but my lack of trust was worn down by my failure to find home. Adults had proven to be of no assistance, but maybe other children would help. At least they might let me stay near them, and perhaps I'd be safer with more kids around. The children weren't welcoming, but they didn't chase me off either as I lay on a hard wooden seat close to them and rested my head on my hands. Blah, 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 he falls asleep, he wakes up, there's a lot of shouting, voices, Some, a child unmistakably screamed out, run, and I leapt to my feet, knowing it was no dream. In the confusion, I saw children being lifted by adult hands and carried off, and a small girl struggling with a man by the edge of a platform. I ran for my life, sprinted away down a darkened platform, leapt off the edge, ran along through a tunnel. Um, uh, there, was, there was danger ahead as well as behind, as the track turned to the right, I found myself face to face with the blinding lights of a train coming straight towards me. I jumped to one side as it hurtled by with a deafening roar. You'll see in the clip that I show that it's a bus in a tunnel because it was way cheaper to shoot a bus coming through a tunnel than to set up a train shot. After that episode, uh, eventually I walked down the riverbank a little and came upon a group of sleeping people that I recognized as holy men. I'd seen men like these back at home uh, blah, blah, blah. These men were barefoot and wore saffron robes and beads, and some of them were quite scary looking with wild clumps of dirty long hair. Wound on their heads and red and white paint on their faces, they were grubby like me from living outdoors on the streets. I had been keeping away from adults as best I could, but surely no one bad would find me here among holy people. I lay down near the men, curled up in a ball, and joined my hands to pillow my head. Before I knew it, morning had come and I was alone. The holy men had left, but the sun was up and there were people walking about. I had survived my first night on the streets of Calcutta. That morning, he sees kids playing in the river. He jumps in the river and splashes about with them, and he starts to drown because he can't swim. And uh, then, I, then uh, splashing and flailing desperately, I pushed up from the river bottom and struggled back to the surface to gasp a breath of air, but the water dragged me down and out again. This time, I was too far out to reach the bottom. I was drowning. Then I heard a splash nearby and found myself wrenched upwards, pulled to the surface and onto the steps where I sat spluttering and cough, coughing up murky water. I had been saved by a homeless old man who had jumped in off the stone drain to reach me just in time and pluck me from the water. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I wrote that scene. It felt magnificent. It felt uh, we, we invented a new thing where he sees his brother, who he's been separated from, 
he hallucinates his brother in the water, calling him in to come and play. And the scene felt really great. Uh, in the end, we dropped that scene because it was extraordinarily expensive and dangerous to shoot. To shoot it would have taken two days with scuba divers, and plus the river was extremely polluted, so there were like health and safety issues. And in the end, the producers said, we, cannot, we can't shoot the drowning scene simply for those kind of technical and practical reasons. Um, that night I was woken by a pack of scary-looking dogs barking under a nearby streetlight. I kept a rock in my hand and a pile of others within easy reach and must have fallen asleep like that. That's a separate night. We were trying to compress all of this into a sense of one day, so we didn't create a new scene with the dogs, but they found two, uh, two dogs to put in the scene. You'll see where he crosses the bridge at night. By the way, that's highly improbable. The bridge that, they, that he crosses um, has never been shut to traffic in 40 or 50 years, and they shut it that night for the shoot. Uh, so it looks beautiful, empty bridge with a couple of scary dogs wandering around, but it's not at all realistic in the sense that that bridge has never not had completely insane traffic going across it at all times. Uh, during his trials and tribulations, he comes across this gang of kids. One boy waving his cigarette around in his hand stood up and approached, talking loudly at loudly at me. His friends laughed along. I couldn't understand a word and stood there wondering what to do. Then he strode straight up and slapped my face twice while he kept on talking at me. Dumbfounded, I started to cry and he hit me again hard and I dropped to the ground and cried while the boys laughed. I realized things could become worse and that I had to get out. And so off he runs and there's this big chase, this gang of street kids chasing him through the streets and he, he jumps into this garbage pit and they throw bottles at him and the bottles are exploding all around him and um, a, a great and vivid scene and again just a sense that we had we were trying to compress so much into this first as it turns out 50 minutes of the film um, that we had to make sacrifices and that included sacrificing great scenes and so that particular scene had to go uh, and then um, finally um, after a few days of his traumatic wandering around and hunger. One quiet but very hot day, I walked around until I was dazed from heat, then sat down on a track, almost falling asleep. A man dressed in a grimy white shirt and trousers came over and asked what I was doing hanging around such a dangerous place. When I replied in my halting way, he not only understood me, they speak Bengali in Calcutta and he, and he speaks Hindi, the little kid, so. He not only understood me, but replied more slowly and carefully so I could understand him. He said that many children were hit by trains and killed here, and others lost arms and legs. Train stations and railway yards were dangerous places, he said, not playgrounds for children. I told him that I was lost and encouraged by the fact that he seemed to be patient enough to listen and work out what I was saying. I explained that I had come from Ginestle, but no one seemed to know where that was, and now I was alone with no family and no place to live. After listening to my story, the first time I'd been able to properly tell it to anyone, he told me he would take me to his home and give me food and water and a place to sleep. I was overjoyed. Somebody had at last stopped to help and was going to save me. I didn't hesitate to go with him. Uh, and so we'll play the clip now and you'll see, I'll talk afterwards perhaps about the decision that we made to make that character a woman, not a man for reasons that are probably dramatically obvious, but uh, let's play the clip, Winky, thanks. This is a long clip, but it covers all those issues that I just talked about and why we dropped them. So thanks for your forbearance in allowing that long clip to play out, but uh, 
uh, I, I'm trying to illustrate that that's exactly 10 minutes, that clip, and that the stuff that we wanted to fit in in the earlier drafts would have made this section play out at approximately, say, 20, 25 minutes. And so the constant question that the producers are asking or the constant pressure from the producers is what is absolutely essential and what is expendable? And um, it's that throw out your baby stuff, you can't get precious about things just because you're very fond of them, uh, which was the case with some of those scenes. But you, you can sometimes transfer little pulses of energy from one section to another. So later on in, in the book, uh, he's wandering around and this little kid um, befriends him. And, um, and, uh, the, and that's the first act of kindness that he kind of experiences. And, and a lot happened and the kid takes him home to his house and the mother showers him, and we, in the script, I intercut scenes of this kid's mother showering Saru with little Saru flashback flashes of his mother, who he's now lost, showering him. And it worked well. It was beautiful. It was lovely. It felt, uh, it felt powerful. But it had to go because it was really busy, and it took quite a few pages to set it all up. Um, but I, when I cut that scene, I created that moment with the little street kid and the piece of cardboard because it felt like what would have been beautiful and what therefore was missing was a moment of uh, uh, tenderness and compassion in, this, in these early stages. Another thing just to point out quickly is that this story, when it came to me, this felt to me exciting because it felt like a primal fairy tale or fable from the earliest dawns of time. And so I said to the Garth, the director, and the producers, uh, how, why don't we try, since it's a fable or a fairy tale, fairy tales do not begin, once upon a time there was this 30-year-old guy and he was going through all this kind of stuff in his head about his past and he was restless and, you know, a fairy tale begins, once upon a time a five-year-old boy stepped onto a train and a catastrophe began. That's a great beginning of a story. The financial pressures in a movie like this, if you're going to be trying to get an international audience trying to win awards or thinking that you might be in with a chance with such things or being able to attract people such as Nicole Kidman, is that you should begin with your adult stars, establish them early in the movie and then loop back in the flashback kind of way and then take it through. I feel eternally grateful that this entire team of people said to me from the very beginning, okay, if you think that's a, a way to begin, against all financing logic, first 50 minutes in Hindi and Bengali with English subtitles and a five-year-old non-professional actor. <laughs> okay, try it, let's try it and see what happens. And if it's not working or if there's pressures against it, we can always rearrange it. It never happened and I'm eternally grateful for that. Um, this is um, a scene where little Saru gets adopted by his Australian adoptive parents, played by Nicole Kidman and David Wenham and he arrives at his new home in Hobart. There's this tiny little fragment of a sentence in the book. It just says, uh, blah, 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 airports, Melbourne, Hobart. So our first night together was spent in the airport hotel sharing a room. Mum put me straight in the bath, lathering me up and dousing me to kill nits and the like. I was in a very different condition from kids in Australia. In addition to external parasites, it turned out I had an intestinal tapeworm, broken teeth, and a heart murmur, which happily didn't last. Being poor in India took its toll on your health, and living on the streets wore you out even more. Um, 
the, the single thing that I found relevant and potentially amazing in that little fragment of information was mum put me in a bath because it just made me wonder about the, um, the incredible awkwardness of that, the decision by these two people to adopt a kid and the weird awkwardness of what it means to have a kid already five years old and what you do on that first night. So this is the scene that came out of that, which is so something that's just purely invented, a way that she might speak to him. Um, it was, it's nice to look for in, I've adapted a few things, uh, and I find that sometimes beautiful moments come out of unlikely little places or that you get little hints about something that could be expanded and created anew and that um, some, and, and it's good to follow the instincts on those hints. Uh, in, in the book, it's more general. He gets into life in Hobart and then jumps through the next few years quite quickly and talks about his assimilation in kind of broad terms. But it felt to us that at this moment in the film, we could really do with something extremely specific and um, kind of spring-loaded with a sort of tender anxiety. The third clip, oh, so I'm also, I'm allowing time for Q&A and hopefully there's gonna be lots of questions to talk about these matters. But I wanna get through the clips first just so that I don't stuff up the time management of the situation. So um, please bear with me on that, yes. Oh, and then and one other thing, the, the first clip and the clip I'm about to show you, um, I will the, the the pages of the script will be available for any of you from the from the app of this symposium, so that afterwards, if you feel like it, you can read what the scenes actually look like that we're that we're talking about their origins and how they were on the screen. The in between moment is the script. I just uh, yeah, I'll, I'll give you a glimpse of those after we look at these. Um, passages. So adult Saru, played by Dev Patel, uh, has been obsessively searching for his home based on the visual memories he retains from when he was five years old about the sort of geographical connection between certain things that he, certain visual memories, the, where the dam is in relation to the station and where this station is in relation to the station of his hometown and and so on. And I want to talk about how we decided to play it out slightly differently in the film from how it's described by Saru and what actually happened in his book. So now he's, he's, you will see he's already on the Google Earth screen now. Then, as the countryside flattened out into farmlands, I finally came across a little blue symbol denoting a train station. I was so attuned to looking for them, I was somehow relieved to find it and I checked out the tiny wayside station, just a few buildings to the side of a reasonably major train line with several tracks. Out of habit, I started tracing the route as it wound southwest. I quickly came across another station, a bit bigger, again with a platform only on one side of the tracks, but some areas of the township on the other side. That explained the overpass. And was that, was that a water tower just nearby? Holding my breath, I zoomed in for a closer look. Sure enough, it was a municipal water tower, water tank just across from the platform and not far from a large pedestrian overpass spanning the railway line. I scrolled over to the town side and saw something incredible, a horseshoe-shaped road around a square immediately outside the station. The ring road I used to be able to see from the platform. Might it be? I zoomed out, discovering that the train line skimmed the northwest of a really large town. 
I checked in on the blue train station symbol to reveal its name. It was called Burampur. My heart nearly stopped. Burampur. I didn't recognize the town, but then I'd never been in it. I'd never left the platform. I zoomed back in and re-examined the ring road, the water tower, the overpass, and they were all positioned where I remembered them. That meant not far away, just up the line, I should find my hometown, Ganestle. Almost afraid to do so, I dragged the cursor to pull the image north along the train line. Train line. When I saw that the track crossed a gorge just on the edge of the built-up area, I was flooded with adrenaline. I remembered in a flash that the train I took with my brothers traveled on a small bridge over a gorge like that before pulling into the station. I pushed on more urgently, east then northeast, zooming in moments over 70 kilometers of green farms, some forested hills and small rivers. Then I passed across some dry flat land broken up by a patchwork of irrigated farmland and the occasional small village before I hit a bridge over a substantial river and I could see the town's outskirts ahead. The river's flow was significantly reduced below the bridge by dam walls on either side. If this was the right place, this was the river I used to play in, and there should be a bigger concrete dam wall to my right a little further from the bridge. And there it was, clearly visible as if on a sunny day, which it must have been when the satellite passed overhead and took the picture. I sat staring at the screen for what seemed like an eternity. What I was looking at matched the picture in my head exactly. I couldn't think straight, frozen with excitement and terrified to go on. I have not yet not cried any time I've seen this film, every time I've seen it. I would really like to not do that today, even just <laughs> reading. Um, finally, I forced myself to take the next step slowly, nervously. I tried to calm myself down so I didn't make any rash judgment, judgments. If I really was looking at Ganesle for the first time in 24 years, then I should be able to follow the path I remembered from the river back to the train station, only a short way up ahead. I began to drag the cursor again, slowly rolling the map to trace the course of the path, which wound gently alongside a tributary stream, left and right, around a field, under a street overpass, and then the station. I clicked on the blue symbol and the name came up on the screen, Kandwa Railway Station. The name meant nothing to me. My stomach knotted, how could this be? Things had looked so right all the way from Buranpur, which surely must be the bee town I had tried to remember. But, the bridge and the river were, but if the bridge and the river were correct, then where was Ginesle? And then jump ahead a few pages. The idea that I'd used a bird's eye view to search one of the most populated countries on earth, looking for landmarks I remembered from when I was five, and that I'd actually found what I was looking for, was incredible, or at the very least, a great surprise. I showed my parents, so he takes his computer to his parents, and he's like, this is weird, I kind of think I found it, but the, the town name doesn't ring a bell. His parents are very um, uh, uh, careful in their approach to not getting his hopes up. Uh, when I arrived home afterwards, I was full of nervous energy and went straight back to my computer. Maybe I had been carried away. Maybe there were other ways of confirming what I already knew. I turned to another tool that hadn't been around when I started my search, Facebook. I searched for, quote, Kandwa, unquote, and up came a group called Kandwa, my hometown. You can actually go to that page and see these exchanges that he writes still there today. It's amazing. Um, I sent a message to the group administrator. Can anyone help me? I think I'm from Kandwa. 
I haven't seen or been back to the place for 24 years, just wondering if there is a big fountain near the cinema. The fountain was the most distinct landmark I could think of. The park where it was located was a busy meeting place and the circular fountain, blah, blah, blah. These are descriptions we dropped for various reasons. The fountain was too complicated. We had enough visual memories and we just wanted to use only them to like ram it home to the audience of what's going on. In other words, we were trying to make it less busy. Um, blah, blah, blah. I went to bed for another restless night. When I woke the next day, I opened my computer first thing and saw that I'd received a response to my query about the fountain on the Kandwa Facebook page. And the response says, well, we can't tell you exactly. There is a garden near the cinema, but, that but the fountain is not that much big. The cinema is closed for years. We will try to update some more pics. Hope you will reconnect something. It was deflating and I cursed myself for getting carried away and telling everyone too early. Why hadn't I waited to get word back from the place itself? But I tried to stay calm. Although this wasn't the confirmation I'd been hoping for, it certainly wasn't a complete dismissal either. I thanked the administrator and headed off to work in a mental fog. It was hard to concentrate as maps and memories swirled around my mind. Could it all be wishful thinking? Had I been wasting my time? And then he's at work and then he spends some time with his mum. Two surreal days passed with no answer from this Facebook group. I was stuck between maps and memories. The things I'd always been certain about were dissolving in the face of what I'd found. Was what I'd always feared actually happening? Would the search erode what I thought I knew and leave me with nothing? My parents, my girlfriend and I didn't talk much more about my breakthrough and I wondered whether they were being overly protective or waiting for me to produce some solid evidence. It took me all that time waiting for the second reply from the Kandwa group to think to ask them the obvious question. Quote, he writes this to them, can anyone tell me the name of the town or suburb on the top right-hand side of Kandwa? I think it starts with G. Not sure how you spell it, but I think it goes like this. Ginestle, question mark. The town is a Muslim one side and Hindu on the other, which was 24 years ago, but might be different now. It took another day to get an answer, but when the answer came back, it was heart-stopping. Ganesh Talai. This was as close to my childhood mispronunciation as you could hope for. In my excitement, I called mum and dad immediately to tell them that now there could be no doubt. They remained worried but conceded that it all lined up. I had found Burinpur and Kandwa, and now, vitally, I had found Ganesh Talai, the area where I lived, where my Indian family might still be living, wondering what became of me. So this is the clip and this is how we tweaked that a little bit. Thank you. So, and by the way, little Sonny, the Sonny Pawar, the actor, uh, says that his favorite thing about acting is running. And he, <laughs> he did so much running in this film. Um, so there's a few things going on there in our decision. Um, you know, there's that rule, sort of, people talk about, you shouldn't really have screens on screen or you should as little as possible. Bad police procedural TV shows, which give you a lot of expositional information on computer screens and all that kind of thing. Yes, there's a great amount of truth to that. We had an insurmountable problem, which was that the release of Google Earth at this point in this guy's life, in real life, was an integral part of our narrative and had to be dealt with. We had to make the screen stuff as dynamic as possible. Um, and so we had to keep it very visceral and visual. Now, there would be a way that you could make that really exciting, what happened in the book, 
the communication with the I grew up in Kandwa uh, Facebook page, there would definitely be a way that you could do that I'm beautifully, I think. But it felt like it took agency away from Saru in some weird way. He was being given information secondhand. And to just see the word rise up on the page. Uh, and by the way, we built it in all the way through, like the emotional context, if you're at this point of the movie and you've just been watching the whole movie is slightly stronger because you've been waiting for this moment and it's uh, revelatory. But it was as simple as that in the end. It was like, what's gonna be more powerful? And it was gonna be more powerful if it was Saru's discovery uh, directly and visually, not in a slightly more complex and verbal way via information that we would need to put onto screen and have typing fingers and all of that kind of stuff, which we already had enough of. Um, oh, and by the way, I loved, I forgot to say after the middle clip, I, I was at the opening, the opening talk this morning on authenticity and it was such a lovely coincidence that um, So Young showed a clip of a, a mother in a bath talking to a child that was similarly framed and so on to ours. I, I love that. Coincidental moment. Um, so I've um, uh, tried to allow, oh yes, it seems to be working quite well. We have some time for questions and I hope that you have some. I can ramble on about other stuff if there aren't. But I just tried to find three clips that told different parts of the journey and the decisions that we made. And, and in my case of this film, it's so lovely to love this film so much and to have been on this journey of its success and to share the love enthusiastically. I think I speak for the producers and for Garth, the director, as well. Um, it continues to be a, uh, a beautiful experience. We're really proud of this film, but it's really a nice opportunity and a rare one to be able to like take it apart a little bit and talk about that with you guys. So any questions, please feel free to ask preferably along the lines of adaptation, but really anything you like. Okay, you, then you, then you. Thank you. Secondly, what was your biggest challenge? My biggest challenge in the script? Okay, so here's the answer to what the biggest challenge was for me. It was trying to create a document that was very fluid and exciting and sexy, that read fast and that had to be read by and that had to excite Actors, financiers, production designers, like trying, it's useless writing. You can't write six different scripts to please six different kinds of people. So the challenge for me and a lot of it was just trying to show this flashback stuff and so on. In the script itself, we devised a system, like a code system. Flashback one, water tower. Flashback two, dam. So it's like, in the first few pages of the script, you learn that these are gonna be called flashback one, flashback two, and that these are devices that we're gonna use through the script. Now in the experience of watching the film, this experience is hopefully completely emotional, completely visceral, and completely invisible. But the challenge for me was in actually thinking through, and so my guess is that 70% of the way I wrote these five or six pages is pretty close to what you saw on the screen, but not entirely. Like Garth made a million discoveries in the edit room of what he was cutting to and from, and I can't actually remember, for example, if I wrote, there's a flashback of the kids tumbling through the leaves and so on. Well, maybe it's in there, I don't know. Uh, that was my biggest challenge, like handling this really technical, difficult Google Earth screen material, but trying to make it not feel like you bogged down 
in the reading experience, trying to make you get excited about making this film kind of thing. Uh, there was behind you and behind you, and then there's a couple others, yeah. Yeah, you. Cool. Um, yeah, first of all, I really like the film. Thank you. But I had this one question looking back and I couldn't really figure out the answer. If, if I remember correctly, after he meets the lady who speaks Hindi to him, yeah. he goes home with her and then a gentleman arrives. So something <laughs> happens of a sort of negative connotation. He runs away from her. Correct. And then he runs into a younger guy with a spoon and then that's how he sort of gets... Uh, c correct. There's some stuff in between there, but that's... Yes. I was wondering why the sort of, I don't know, it felt like a deal to go with the lady who speaks in the end and all that, and then come back to this stuff. Why was that in the middle there? Well, I originally wrote it as it was in the book. It was a bunch of railway workers, and they took him in. They were kind of nice to him, but then he heard them, like, talking weirdly with each other one night, and they brought this man. Like, they were like, they lived in shanties by the railway lines. And they brought this man who was like debonair and well-dressed. And he checks out Saru and, and he talks to him and he lies down beside him in the bed. And he's like, so I hear you lost and da 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 da. And Saru in the book describes how he didn't really know what was going on, but his instinct was going, this is not right. And the guy says, I'm gonna come back tomorrow and I'm gonna, we'll go look for your parents. It's all gonna be good. And that night, he runs away from those railway men. So in early drafts of the script, all of that existed. Um, at some point, I don't exactly remember, my, I think that Ian Canning, one of the producers, said, why don't we upturn, if we made that person a woman who's like the connection to the child sex trafficking situation, that's fucking creepy. That's creepier than a more expected kind of situation. So that was just a decision. Uh, because, well, he, the decision was based on the fact that she, she seems lovely. She seems like the first person in the film who says, I can protect you. And she's completely the opposite of that. So dramatically, that's interesting. Uh, and, then the, and, then I wrote, and then that was completely fictional. The guy who actually comes and rescues him and takes him to the police station. I wrote that as a woman. So I, I wrote, the first version was a bad bunch of men like probably the child sex traffickers, and this woman comes to his rescue. When we changed the first thing and made it a woman, it was like, let's, let's make the person who's really good and kind-hearted, the potential young man pedophile, let's make him the nice guy and make it a man, not a woman. So, I don't know, there was no, that, that was kind of the reason for those decisions. Uh, and then behind you, there was one, and then... Uh, Saru had uh, very little involvement in the, in, like, the script writing process. Um, when, he, when we finished a, a sufficiently advanced enough draft, we sent it to him and his family, and Saru's response was basically, oh, okay, so that's what a script looks like. Um, <laughs> he, his... He loves the film. He had a process of coming to terms with the fact that we changed things and took liberties and compressed things. But he was pretty happy with most of it. Uh, you know, the, the, the real Saru basically burned through three girlfriends over five years because he was so completely obsessively focused. We make it feel like six months, one girlfriend, and a mini breakup kind of thing. <laughs> it was just dramatically because it was, you know, we didn't want to be introduced. You want one 
good, you want to cast Rooney Mara. You, you can't cut, get, say to Rooney Mara, you can be in half the film and we're going to find a new girlfriend for the second half of the film. It's just like continuity and compression are really important. And he was fine with that kind of thing. Uh, yes? Yes, my process of, great questions. My process of writing has changed enormously over the years. Uh, part of that process is that I'm an absolute passionate believer in extremely detailed treatments. I hate them. They are the least fun piece of writing of any piece of writing in the whole world. And they're incredibly important. The more detailed your treatment can be, uh, the more problems you're going to solve yourself later. And everyone's going to be on board. It, you know, it's like I don't write treatments that say, then he goes through a really difficult time for the next three months. It's like I'm going to... I'm going to give you the beat by beat by beat of what you're seeing. So the treatment's like a mini, I mean, you know, the, um, yeah, scriptment, the word was mentioned earlier. But it's like, treatments are important. My process has changed. Um, um, it, well, I'm more disciplined as I get older. I treat it, it's just like, I've, I am so fortunate that these things happened and that, I wrote this film which these guys turned into a beautiful film and that I'm being offered more jobs as a result of that. So it's kind of like um, I now I want to take these jobs and I do not want to get a reputation as a late deliverer. So I'm extremely disciplined now. And I hire an assistant. We hook my laptop up with an HDMI cable to, my, to the big TV screen. Um, and then we pile all the stuff into the document, all the treatment even, into the final draft document, the actual script document, and then over the, and then she turns up at work every day. So this does several things for me. Um, it makes, I'm very lazy and work evasive person. If I'm by myself, I get, I'll sit at my desk, I'll fiddle around on the internet for half an hour, I'm like, oh, okay. Then I'll get restless, I'll go see what's in the fridge, then I'll work past the couch and I'll be like, you know what, I could actually lie on the couch and watch that episode of Game of Thrones that I taped last night. <laughs> it's, it's research, I'm a writer, I can watch all the TV I want. But when I'm paying Martha, my assistant, uh, I'm, it's like I'm on, she's on the clock, I'm on the clock. And it's very disciplined. Um, and I don't have those restless, I push through the restless moments. Like she's sitting there and I'm not going to waste her time. Um, it's a whole lot more than that. She's, we've developed a rhythm with her. We, when I say we, I've, I'm working on, with David Michaud on this other thing and we've been working with uh, Martha. But there's something else and that is that when I'm hunched over my computer screen, I'm a perfectionist and a control freak, I waste half a day polishing a sentence. And when I'm with her, that's kind of embarrassing. It's like, I, I fix it later. It's like when I get the first draft done, then I obsessively need to be alone for a few weeks to do all that polishing. But uh, I'm not going to waste time like that when I'm with her. So it's incredibly efficient. And then the third thing is, this is going to sound a bit weird, but I find that if I'm leaning back with no, not controlling any things, if I'm like leaning back on a couch in a daydream posture, um, and, she's, and I'm dictating, I'm literally, it, our habit is literally uh, uh, character, John, uh, parenthetical, angry, uh, give me the da, 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 full stop, paragraph, John walks across the room and opens the door, full stop. So it's literally like that. When I'm doing that in that physical posture, it's like it frees your head and you get to much more interesting places than if you're like this. It's really, really different. So yes, good, the good fortune that 
I was so broke for so many years, but now I pay Martha $20 an hour, and I'm like, see you at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning, and we work from 10 till 6 or whatever, so that's changed for me. I'm really disciplined now. And then there was someone beside you, yes. Um, yeah, and some of the questions have already been answered, but um, adaptation, I think that's like the scariest thing to take on, because I've the famous saying, you know, the movie's never better than the book. Yeah. Um, and you've done quite a few adaptations. How do you feel about that statement, being a person who actually does the movie's never better than the book. It's largely true, but not always true. I'm just, there's some great examples of that not being true. Uh, I'm just trying to think of one. <laughs> Often it's the case that a sort of, The Shining, fantastic example, thank you. That's like the number one example. And I was about to say, often it's a sort of more crappy-ish type book, can become a good movie and the really great Books are more difficult. Me and David Michaud are doing an in-conversation tomorrow. We are work working on an adaptation, a TV, a six-episode television adaptation of Catch-22. That's one of the greatest novels ever, and it's an incredibly challenging journey that we're on. But uh, I don't know. I, I want to write original stuff too. I just keep these adaptation situations keep landing in my lap. I'm going to try and look to other parts of the room. And Yes? Um, when doing this film, what motivated you the most? Was it the way that you about the story or the way that you wanted the story to provoke emotions in the people who will be viewing it? Uh, the question was, what motivated me the most? Either the way that you felt like emotionally when you created your scenes or was it the way you wanted the emotions to make other people feel? Great, the way I felt emotionally when creating the scenes or the way I wanted other people to feel emotionally. Um, it, the two are inextricably blended and um, this task, um, became like, oh my God, this is so exciting. This job is real. I love these producers. I think this film's going to happen. It's an unbelievably emotional story. And then, but it wasn't about me experiencing the emotions. It was like, I want to feel what it feels like to sit in an audience and feel them cry. And the first time that started happening, it's an incredible feeling. I can't, I still love that feeling. I, 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 I we saw Lion a lot back September, October, November, December, January, February, leading into the Oscar situation, it was insane. So many um, screenings, and it was an amazing experience to feel people beginning to sniffle and lose their shit around you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, up the back. Uh, Yes. Uh, do you feel that it remains intact in terms of the work that you've done uh, with the team to make the film? I do. I answer this question very tentatively because it's not really for me to say. It's for you and the world and the audience and critics to say if we did that, did we skirt issues? How did we approach and handle issues of cultural appropriation? And But I will stick my neck out and say that I feel that by, by seeing the pure essence of the primal fable-like nature of this extraordinary story and treating that as my personal mission statement, that this story of reunification with the lost mother was that I, I absolutely knew where this story had to go and I absolutely felt that I knew what the audience had to feel at the end of this movie. 
and that we could pull that off with sensitivity. Uh, but it, it's not for me to say that we successfully did that. Well, I'm kind of saying it, I think and believe that we did, <laughs> but I hope we did, that's what I'm saying. I should look over here a bit, yes. Can you tell me a little bit about Saru's brother? I must have been, I stalked, stalked them both on Facebook. And, um, <laughs> he, he seemed about happy with, with well, the Saru, there's Saru, and he's going for these events. And yeah. brothers. But I, I didn't know the background behind him, I only knew what was just the truth from the book. Yeah. The question is about Saru's brother, Mantosh. For those of you who haven't seen, Saru's uh, Indian adoptive brother, not blood brother. Uh, and the relationship. I have never, I did not, was not aware that Mantosh had a Facebook page, so I didn't know that he's been grumbling about it or anything like that. But, uh, right. Uh, so, right. No, no, no. Yeah. Well, just in case anyone doesn't know, Saru's character has a very troubled brother, Mantosh, in the film, played by an amazing actor, Divian Landois. And, um, and it was really complicated because, uh, because Mantosh is not well, and like extremely not well. And, um, w and as the filmmakers, we could not, leave Mantosh out of the film. He existed in the story and he was a really important part of it. And at the same time, we couldn't, we had to, uh, we had to, we were extremely aware that we did not want to cause any pain in the world. And it felt almost unavoidable to put Mantosh into this film and his illness, illnesses and do it without causing him pain. And Mantosh, Mantosh goes up and down and um, Mantosh accepts the film. He accepts that his, it's his brother's story, not his. In a positive way, it's made Mantosh have the desire to go back to India and find out more about his roots. But his story was different. Like, Saru was genuinely lost. A lot of, there's so much poverty in India that a lot of children are put into orphanages by their families because they can't afford to raise them. And in those orphanages, there's, in some of those, some of those orphanages are hell holes. And so before, before Mantosh was adopted, he suffered horrendous abuse that caused much of his illness. So the situation is extremely complex. It's hard to talk about publicly. We feel and the family feels that we did some form of justice to the pain surrounding all of that very, very difficult situation. We couldn't whitewash him and we couldn't centralize him. Narratively speaking, he, he wasn't a, the big part of the story. It's really complicated. Uh, we tried to tread with great sensitivity around that issue. No, it's a great question. We, yes, oh yes. One more quick question. Okay. We heard Mr. Broderick say earlier um, that Hollywood makes content-free movies. And, uh, <laughs> I heard that. Uh, it's a widely held view that writers aren't given the respect they deserve in Hollywood, compared with directors. I have. I'm aware of that. I've had that experience. It's a fact of life that the it's the director's medium, and that at a certain point, I have less control over the thing that I hand over. I have certain secret ambitions about how to move certain steps into place to do my own thing and make my own mistakes and take control and responsibility for those. I've had one 
unpleasant-ish experience where I wrote this film that was the end result is, it's not, it's not a bad film. It's not a great film. And, and the director came on board late and just took the script and was like, oh, cool. And I thought, my God, I've written the greatest script ever. He doesn't even have questions for me. <laughs> but it was sort of like... <laughs> But David Misha, my, fr my good friend and collaborator who I'm speaking with um, tomorrow, you know, he said, red flags, man. The minute that guy got the job, the fact that he didn't sit down with you for a week and go through your script sentence by sentence, line by line, beat by beat, and ask you what everything is supposed to mean was like red flag stuff. Um, um, but now I'm in this unusually privileged position that Lion has completely changed my life. And all the people who lost the bidding war on the script, like I spent years, I couldn't even pay my rent for years. I don't know how I survived in LA for the first years. I couldn't even get a meeting with a junior executive. I couldn't get an agent. It was really difficult. At a certain point, things shifted and things changed. At a second certain point, Lion exploded my life. All the studio heads who lost the bidding war on the script were like, we got to meet this guy who makes you cry. And now? <laughs> I'm sort of a little, at the moment, I'm like, get the guy who makes you cry, you know? <laughs> and so now I keep being, so now I'm learning how this, um, this is weird because it sounds show-offy, but in the last six, nine months, 12 months, I've started to, my problem has become finding criteria to say no. Like things are being offered to me now, it's like, oh shit, okay, I gotta read that novel and make a decision, and that looks like a good novel, and this is interesting. But I am being given a few too many things that are like orphanages and <laughs> lost children. <laughs> uh, my future feels, I feel like I have more choice now and a lot of it's because of Garth Davis and this beautiful film. Thank you. This session is presented by production company South Pacific Pictures. The Big Screen Symposium is brought to you by Script to Screen and JNA Productions. We would like to thank our event partners, the New Zealand Film Commission, New Zealand On Air, Images and Sound, Auckland Tourism Events and Economic Development, and Stage and Screen Travel Services. Voiceover is provided by Samantha Dukes and music by Poddington Beer.